Hi, my name is Mario Veen, and this is one of the final episodes of this podcast about philosophy and medical education. I will discuss the article Mind the Gap, a philosophical analysis of reflection's many benefits with its authors Sven Schaapkens and Thijs Leister. Sven Schaapkens is a PhD candidate at the Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands. He studied reflection in practice in the Dutch General Practitioner Specialty Training since 2019. Thijs Leister is a philosopher who works as Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Art and Culture at the Department of Arts, Culture and Media Studies of the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. The article we discussed today was published as part of the Philosophy in Medical Education series of the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. It will also be part of the edited volume that Anna Cianciolo and myself are publishing in August. This book is called Helping a Field See Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. You can order it through the link in the description. Welcome, Sven and Thijs. Thank you so much for your article. I just reread it this afternoon and yeah, it's such a good article. Thank you. I'm really happy to discuss it with you. Thijs, you're not from medical education. You're a philosopher. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and yeah, why when Sven approached you, why did you say yes? Yeah, sure. Um, so indeed, I uh, am a uh, my, my background is in in philosophy and then uh, specifically philosophy of culture and and art. Um, so in that regard, uh, this um, my my expertise and, and my topics are are rather removed from. Um, from the field of of medical education uh but uh the reason why uh i became fascinated uh after sven's uh, invitation was because i i did see several connections to to my own uh, research interests and, and and perhaps i i can mention uh, two uh so my own background like i said is in philosophy and, and particularly also critical theory uh and um the, my, my PhD thesis, for instance, was about uh, art criticism and, and the way in which art criticism can also function as a form of social and political criticism. And one of the things in, in art criticism, which uh, I think is interesting, is that um, you uh, are looking for a kind of, of argument regarding, regarding beauty, for instance, or regarding the quality of, uh, of a work of art in the absence of uh, fixed rules. Um, and uh, because very often in, in the debate around art criticism, it is sometimes said that you cannot have art criticism if there aren't any clear rules. But I would I would argue the the exact opposite way that only if these rules are are gone um, in modernity when when uh, all kinds of, of rules regarding beauty and art were thrown overboard that is the moment when art criticism emerges and that you get this kind of conversation about beauty and about art in which people are basically trying to build a ship in, in open sea with, with, without any kind of solid ground under their feet. You need to build an argument. You need to uh, uh, find truth in, in a way, uh, even if, if there, there isn't a kind of solid uh, fundament there. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was one way that I, I, I saw a, a kind of parallel with, with how reflection uh, um, 
and and uh, critical uh, thought was uh, was functioning in in the field of uh, of med medical ed education and, and this precise argument of course we we will discuss later um one other way in in which i uh, which i found interesting which is perhaps more related indeed to the um, uh, philosophy of culture is that uh, a, a kind of contemporary culture of neoliberalism is very often characterized uh, based on uh, the overabundance of protocols, rules, uh, red tape uh, that 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 uh, are of course very often also part of, of frustration of, of professionals in the field of education, but also in in law or or indeed in in, in medicine, um, and that this is sometimes referred to as a kind of form of deprofessionalization. That that because you have all these let's say uh, uh, fixed rules and protocols, it's basically a kind of distrust. Of the uh, professional, right? That 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 constantly needs to account for every decision, every uh, every move that they uh, they make. Yeah, so, because there are sometimes no clear rules, that's why you have space for reflection in medical education, and you also need to be professional in in these circumstances where there's like ambiguity and and it's not clear what you need to do by the book. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Especially uh, reflection in in a way that this this is kind of the one of the main thoughts in in our in our article. I, I guess that reflection takes place precisely where there's a gap between theory and practice, right? Where 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 you cannot immediately rely on uh, on the theory in order to make a practical decision. I'd like to get more into how how because you're kind of an outsider to this field and i think it's always very interesting when outsiders are you know trying to say something inside a field because they can offer yeah also a fresh perspective i think mm -hmm. but uh yeah sven you're a friend of the show of course we've spoken to you before but uh maybe you could say tell a little bit about yourself and um yeah say something about because you've been studying reflection in medical education for a couple of years now and yeah what what are your conclusions so far let me be humble i don't i don't think i have very fixed conclusions just yet so um having studied uh reflection for the last year particularly in the context of the gp specialty training in the netherlands um i have a couple of observations to make um, and maybe others can draw the definitive conclusions about you know my observations um the first is that having been speaking to gp trainees uh, gp teachers um sort of observing the field uh, also as a philosopher and in and an interactions researcher i've noticed particular let's say ways of speaking about a reflection that constitute a particular, let's say, reflexive or educational culture. And um, I'd like to think about um, the sort of unsaid or alternatives to how people develop this culture in, you know, the practices regarding reflection education, the activities that they do to instill reflection, um, you know. And what I've noticed in working on this particular study with uh, Thijs is um, when you read reflection 
or studies on reflection and reflection literature, you quickly notice that in the medical education field, there's a lot of talk about um, the benefits of reflection. Now, Thais and I don't deny that reflection has certain benefits. But what was striking to me at first instance, having read this literature for a while and following in it, is that I noticed there are so many benefits that at some point you think, wow, you know, just put on the reflection button and so many problems will disappear. So uh, to just quote a couple, reflection can reduce burnout. Uh, people say it increases empathy. It could decrease stress. It develops professionalism. It refines clinical skills. Um, it helps practitioners transition from theory to practice. And as Thais already mentioned, it reflection seems to be very important to sort of bridge a theory practice gap. So, you know, reflection becomes this kind of uh, fix-it-all kind of mechanism that we need to instill in our future, um, you know, medical professions, including the, the GP uh, trainees. Now, I'm not against figuring out what all these effects are, um, but I found it conceptually and philosophically interesting to think about the opposite, as we argue in, in the paper, you know, when there is reflection to bridge reflection, sorry, from uh, when, when reflection is there to bridge theory from practice, it also implies that there is a kind of gap. And in, in this case, this gap is particularly interesting. And um, with Thais, we, we, we looked into a couple of philosophies in relation to the medical education field particularly Kant, uh, Hannah Arendt, Heidegger, and Derrida, you know, to to look at this, you know, problem, no, no, not a problem, this, this uh, beneficial side of reflection from the perspective of the gap or the aporia. So, because these philosophers, these continental philosophers argue that, you know, for human reason, for human experience in general, the aporia or the gap is quite important and it's vital. And to think about, you know, reflection as a means to bridge, to bridge this gap and to kind of flip that on its head and figure out what particular other um, presuppositions are still hidden there. This is why I was interested in, in, you know, taking a closer look at all these wonderful benefits that reflection supposedly have. Can you give an example of such a gap? Um, yeah, so the main gap that is in the in the in the literature is is quite often mentioned as reflection helps people to cross the theory to the practice, and there's a gap between those two, and um, and we've noticed that in in the philosophers in the works of the philosophers that we just mentioned, they also discuss a similar kind of gap. Um, so, for instance, uh, when we we draw from Kant. Um, there is a sort of explanation of, of this phenomenon by thinking about chess. So, for instance, when we all learn the rules of chess, um, the issue is, okay, I've, I've learned the basics of chess, but to, in order to make a good move in chess, well, that is hard to define in a particular specific rule. And that is where Kant becomes interesting because he says, well, you know, we can't make rules to apply rules and to keep on defining rules to apply rules in practice. No, at some point you just kind of have to use the rules and create a dialogue between the, the rules that you know and the concrete practical situation that you're confronted with from the world 
and then kind of um, jump or apply or practice kind of what it means to apply a good move rather than just, you know, um, simply reapplying uh, a rule. I, I hope that was kind of clear, though. Yeah, then a, then a move in, in that case would be uh, asking what question are you going to ask the patient or what diagnosis, how do you uh, make your diagnosis, something like that? Yeah, so 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 the gaps from 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 medical education would be indeed um, okay. How how can you apply certain standards to a particular um, case? And these can be medical standards, but also, for instance, standards how we should deal with uh, doctor patient communication. Um, you know, there's there's particular guidelines of how you should engage with patients, but sometimes these guidelines get in the way of the practical situation. And then, you know, what is a correct move if the guidelines say A, but perhaps the situation asks slightly different interpretation of the rules. So that is where the gap sort of originates or kind of becomes prominent and you can't ignore that gap and you can't just fall back on, and these were the protocols and this is how I'm going to do it. Well, that probably is not what the situation at hand required from you. Rather, it's a constant dialogue between what the protocols say and what the situation requires. So that is the gap from theory to practice. Yeah, great. So Thais, I positioned you before as kind of an outsider to the field. And, and you already mentioned some parallels with, with, uh, with culture and your work as a philosopher of culture. Are there also things that you noticed about reflection in medical education that surprised you or that you, yeah, the way that medical education approaches reflection that stood out for you that's maybe different than what you're used to? Yeah, I, I guess what what stood out for me, at least in, in part, was the kind of um, uh, ideal that was sometimes implicitly um hidden in, in the discourse uh, around reflection, the, the ideal that reflection itself could completely be protocolized, so to say, or, or uh, catched in, um, uh, in, in uh, rules or in a kind of uh, uh, fixed form of, of education uh, and, and hence also be uh, be trained in, in in a very strict way. Um, this, uh, in a way, was 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 not a a big surprise because I I also realized that especially in, in medical education it, it is very necessary to uh, um, uh, to be able to uh, teach all the rules and 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 to uh, have, have, uh, let's say a proper rubrics and and proper learning outcomes and and uh, so all the kinds of things that I myself were also familiar with as a lecturer at a university were um I I recognized in the field of medical education but but perhaps you know in an even more extreme form um and uh, there, I, I think this this idea of of the gap that uh, that Sven and I constantly came back to uh, becomes very interesting because it, in in a way, what we uh, end up arguing, and, and perhaps we we will get to that uh, more in detail later. But but what we uh, our conclusion in a way is also that you need to 
accept that this gap can never be completely filled, so to say, that that this gap will also uh, or, or will, will in a way always be there. And there, uh, I was indeed reminded, and we discussed this also in in uh, in, in our article of um, a certain. Um, insights in, in especially continental philosophy, indeed in, in uh, what, what Sven just called the aporia, uh, as it is theorized by figures like uh, Kierkegaard and, uh, and, and Jacques Derrida. Uh, and what's aporia? It, it, it's basically a, a gap <laughs> or, 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 yeah, a gap, or indeed yeah. an, an opening. And and what 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 uh, what they mean by this, and and especially Kierkegaard uh, as a quite an ec- extreme way of phrasing this, because he says that in every decision there's a moment of madness. And uh, what he means by this is is that you need to make an actual decision. You can never completely rely on the theory or on the rules because that in a way would would not then it would no no longer be a decision then it would be merely a calculation so so if you make indeed a mathematical calculation you never have to make a decision because the the conclusion Mm. uh, uh, follows let's say in a straight line from uh, from uh, everything that you have calculated but a uh, uh, actual decision is something quite different because there are indeed, of course, you you know the theory, you know the rules, but still, indeed, as, as Sven, Sven just uh, explained, you still need to apply the rules. So, a judge, for instance, a judge has been trained in the in in the law and he knows the law, he knows uh, all the rules, but still, to be able to apply the law to this particular case and say whether indeed uh, the the um, the defendant is guilty or not guilty according to Kierkegaard uh, there is a moment of madness in there and and this indeed is is in a, in a way already proven by the fact that different um judges might make different uh, decisions right and 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 right. Uh, and and different different jurors might might make different uh, decisions and so so in in a way th- these are are moments which which resist the kind of full calculation or full full protocolization uh, and and but this uh, makes them also very uh, very uh, interesting, I think, and and, and thought provoking. And and these are precisely, I I think, the the moments where professionalism, um, in a way, um, comes to light. So that's where you find the professionalism as well, and the connection with reflection. But so, Sven, why is it that the gap cannot be filled? Because there's a lot of you know, a lot of articles as well, when they speak about theory and practice gaps, it's always about bridging the gap or f- filling the gap. But you're saying that's not possible fundamentally. It's not just, you know, an ideal that we should, we might never achieve it, but you're saying it's a wrong ideal or it's not the right ideal to have? Uh, I don't mind it as an ideal per se, although we <laughs> we could criticize perhaps the ideal for various reasons, but I think it is more fundamentally impossible. So another gap that we that we highlighted with the work from the continental philosophers that we use in our article is the gap between the individual and the communal or the the, commu- the, the, the communal sense of what the profession means. So the moment that um, 
let's say I as an individual professional make a certain choice, it doesn't per se mean that everyone in my stat who is also a professional would make the exact same choice. Now, the issue is, is that um, everybody kind of has a has a position in this community and you're trying to figure out when you're reflecting what your individual sense of the case at hand is in relation to the communal sense. But these two positions are not fixed in the sense that um, the communal sense is not always a monolith that is always the same at every time, at every space where you, let's say, find this communal sense, right? Because throughout time, the communal sense, or let's say the, the professionals who make the community, they change their their norms and beliefs and values due to the experience that they have as individuals or as a group, they change. Um, new members become part of this group and and that also creates a, creates a different way of understanding, you know, what the norms and values are um, from, let's say, a communal perspective of what the profession should be. So in that regard, the individual sense, um, you know, it might, it might seem stable from your own single position, but, you know, there is a constant dialogue between yourself and this community that you that you have to relate with and that you sort of together construct um, you know the profession with i'm very interested in this myself in the yeah in in two contexts actually one is um planetary health where you see there's also a difference in generations because there's uh, maybe still, let's say, a communal sense about what is our responsibility as professionals in the climate crisis, where, where, what are the limits of our uh, profession, should you be an activist or not, how, you know, how far does your responsibility reach? And then I think there, of course, there are many individuals who actually, they become either climate activists or they do see uh within their profession a much larger responsibility right and yeah and and another example that comes to mind is in technological innovation like we had a lot of chatter about chat gpt and yeah i think this is another thing that comes up that prompts reflection right like what yep. now we have this thing called chat gpt how is it integrated in our profession should can we use it in diagnosis of patients or not yeah do you see it that way? Is there, are, do you see these gaps there? Yeah, yeah, I, I completely see them as well. Uh, also in the data that I look at. So um, the data we, that we use for a couple of our studies in, in my PhD are drawn from reflection, uh, weekly reflection rounds at the GP uh, Specialty Training Institute, the university. And um, how I'd like to see this is that, you know, there's about 10 individual GP trainees who come together with their own ideas and thoughts about, um, you know, what their profession is. Um, and they're supervised by two teachers who, of course, have a lot more experience with, you know, being in this profession. But then, you know, they start sharing experiences. Um, for instance, one one that we quote in the article um, is one from a, a GP trainee who is criticized for how she picks up the phone when she speaks to patients. And then she kind of like, you know, she doesn't really know how to deal with it. And this was feedback from her supervisor. And then in that particular case discussion, she asks, okay, what do you guys think of this, right? Her, her peers. And how do you deal with this? And then, you know, in this way, and I see it in the data constantly on a many 
topics that are relevant for GPs ranging from like, you know, what do you, what do you do medically with this case to how do I deal with this particular patient or how do I deal with my supervisor, et cetera. Those are ways of like calibrating your communal sense as an individual who brings yeah. in her brings in an, an own case and and this constant calibration is is very intriguing to me because um on the one hand they have uh, inherited a type of speaking ideas about what the ideal practitioner should look like but then these concrete experiences that they share you know they push back perhaps a bit on these ideals or maybe they they um affirm some of the 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 prejudices or assumptions that they have but each time that they they start talking and discussing about these cases kind of they they reactivate and reconstruct and therefore rethink you know what it means to be in this uh, in this profession and calibrate their individual sense against the communal sense and and i i find these these reflection rounds therefore very um uh, fertile grounds to see this process of socialization but also personification going on. Like I, I find it fascinating because it all happens there. Yeah, and then these concrete details of how do you answer the phone and what do you say? Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, 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 it can't be more practical than that, but that becomes a problem if a supervisor tells a, a GP trainee, like, you're picking up the phone wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, how do you deal with that? And how do yeah, others yeah. deal with that? And then, yeah, and that spins into like this calibration of like, okay, what does it mean to... Re- to re- receive such feedback from a supervisor and what can I say? And Thais, how do you see that? Because these are also, of course, larger cultural trends around climate, around technology. Uh, of course, there's also many societal developments. Um, yeah. Yeah, but perhaps I, I can indeed respond to to your your final uh, or, or your, your second um uh, example of the uh, of the technological developments, uh, and here I, I uh, was reminded of this. Um, uh, since you mentioned uh, ChatGTP and all the all the concerns uh, in the field of education around that, I was also reminded of uh, I think something that the philosopher Slavoj Žižek said that if now all students uh, let their uh, thesis write by uh, ChatGTP, then we as professors we just let them grade. Uh, we we let ChatGTP grade uh, all the papers, <laughs> and then everyone can do something uh, better. With go their, outside um, and uh, go for a picnic. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Uh, which I, I found very, very funny. But, but of course, the, the concern about these technologies is, uh, I think, justified to that extent that, um, well, for a couple of reasons. One reason is, of course, that uh, artificial intelligence, uh, as we uh, um, as, as as we mostly know, is, is perhaps not as uh, uh, artificial nor as intelligent as it sometimes uh, pretends to be in, in the sense that, uh, of course, a lot of uh, actual human uh, uh, work and human labor goes into it, which also means that it suffers from the same kinds of biases and the same kinds of uh, errors that the human intelligence suffers from. And this is sometimes also referred to as the garbage in, garbage out uh, principle. If, if, you, if you, let's say, uh, uh, include uh, racist data in in uh, in uh, a system, then also racist data, uh, then, then it's also not surprising that, that the system is going to be racist, as we have seen in, in the case of the uh, Dutch scandal with the... Um, um, 
de toeslagenaffaire. How would you... Uh... Let's say the tax service profiled people as high risk, I guess. They would get um, controls, uh, extra controls. And, and the, yeah, the basis of that was an algorithm. And that algorithm was, well, let's say racist. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Indeed. So that is, I think, one, one concern that uh, if, if we outsource uh, basically uh, these kinds of decisions to, uh, to systems, then we need to take into account that they are suffering probably from the same kinds of biases that, that we ourselves are, are suffering from. But I guess a more, even more principal point is indeed this, this outsourcing itself, that, that once you, let's say, outsource your intelligence to um, algorithms or even uh, indeed all uh, all kinds of protocols and rules, then it sometimes can, uh, in, in an extreme form, it can mean that you do not uh, do no longer judge yourself. And this is sometimes uh, indeed sometimes something I also see in the case of um, my own uh, practices as, as an educator that that sometimes you are so busy, following the protocols and filling in the forms that you lose sight of of actually judging about let's say a thesis or or a, uh, a work that that a student has done and and i think this kind of pretension that you can uh, uh that you can catch all these moments of decision making into forms into rules into protocols i think this is a um uh, an ideal that uh, is indeed uh, sven just said uh, impossible but it 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 also in a way loses sight of um of of the the kind of human moment which is this moment of of madness in in a way that is part of of any form of decision making mm. but that that's what i really like about your paper it's kind of a strange paper in the sense of how, if you compare it to the the paper formats that you usually see in medical education because it seems to start out as kind of a literature review like what are the benefits of reflection <clears throat> but then actually the literature the benefits you say well hmm, it's it's strange that one thing has so many benefits so that's kind of a critical note and it becomes quite critical but it seems that you, what you are saying here is that well you need especially in 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 times of artificial intelligence and and a protocolization you need a reflective practitioner there so you need not just someone who executes let's say the outcome of algorithms or, or calculations or protocols but you need a human being there who who yeah is conscious and and applies the rules and and even if that means that there's like a moment of madness that there's something like madness i would say irrationality uh or you could say more positively say creativity mm -hmm. so it seems like you're very much making a plea for and and sven you kind of have to do that because your phd is on on reflection so you kind of have to make a plea for it right <laughs> so how because yeah i i happen to know sven because I'm also your co-promoter. So your research question of your PhD, of which this article is a part, is how do we make reflection concrete and valuable for, in your case, GP residents? So could you speak a little bit about uh, how how this yeah how this story fits into your thesis and into answering that research question? Yeah. So um, 
as I said in the beginning, what I've seen happening in the literature is that we tend to have this urgency, this, 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 this inclination to figure out how stuff exactly works, empirically validate it, um, uh, show that if you do reflection in a certain way, these are the outcomes, it reduces stress, it makes everybody more empathetic, and et cetera, et cetera. And once you sort of adopt our, you know, perspective from the gap, you know, that the gap will always be there and that it is actually then quite challenging to truly pinpoint these effects empirically, like, you know, that reflection will relate to uh, certain and especially all the many benefits that are mentioned in the literature, then I started thinking about, okay, what is the alternative if I want to, you know, um, keep the gap intact? What is the alternative? What can I say about the reflection that is happening on the GP, in the GP specialty training and the data that I'm looking at that comes from this particular place? So, you know, how ca how can I say something about reflection if I don't want to measure it, its effects exactly, if I don't want to protocolize it um, in, a, in a very tight sort of rules-based um, method or table that students could follow, what is left to me? And now the answer to that is we look at, for instance, group reflection sessions or supervisor sessions and, you know, the the people involved in this, the teachers and the GP trainees, they claim that they're doing a reflection there. So that actually takes a little bit of the pressure off of my shoulders as a researcher in the sense that, okay, you turn me towards what you think is reflection and I'm going to look. So what we do in our research is bracket all these um, particular theories or conceptualizations of about reflection as much as possible and just start looking at the, you know, the way people speak to each other, the things that they do or don't do in these reflection sessions. And I do that as an interactions researcher, as I mentioned before. So to give you an example, um, with a colleague of mine, Marije van Braak, we have looked at the data and we've noticed that, for instance, emotions seem to be very important to speak about in this reflexive setting. Um, we have 40 recordings of these group reflection sessions and there's about 180 cases that are being discussed in there. And quite a few have an emotional dimension in there. And now that was very striking to us because in a previous study that we did, um, Maraya showed that um, the GP trainees find it important to reflect on emotions, but they also say that sometimes, you know, the teachers or even their peers, you know, keep on nagging about the emotions so much, right? So there is an interesting tension there that on the one hand, they say, okay, talking about, um, uh, sorry, reflecting on emotions is important, but on the other hand, doing it sort of wrong or weirdly is also a bit annoying. So we kind of took that indication from the participants and started looking into data. So, okay, first, can we find an orientation to the norm, you know, that emotions are important and we and we found it. And then secondly, we we took that evidence and thought, okay, if emotions are so important to this reflexive setting, how do people talk about emotions? How do they mobilize it? How do they put emotions on the table? And what we've noticed are a couple of practices that on the one hand, sometimes these practices are very effective to indeed table emotions. And sometimes we see similar practices that just completely, 
you know, make talking about emotions ineffective. So in that way, we're trying to map the education reflexive culture in this particular setting and try to understand how reflection comes to be and how, you know, how the people talk with each other creates a kind of education and reflexive culture. And what I finally want to say is basically what I'm suggesting is um, there is no single way, for instance, to reflect about emotions um, in this particular way. There are multiple ways that you can address emotions and each one has a different kind of effect depending on the situation. So what I'm trying to show is um, I'm mapping basically this reflexive culture and trying to show it like a a sort of sampling card, like a paint sampling card. So imagine that you go to, you know, the hardware store and pick out paint for your walls. You know, then there's blue and, and yellow and green and all the shades in between. And that's how I think about reflection. There's multiple shades that people can use. And I'm I'm, I'm mapping as much, as much of these colors as possible. And I will not pinpoint that blue is the best color. I will pinpoint there's a range of colors that you can use to make reflection effective and create a particular reflexive culture and socialize your your GP trainees into this culture and that they're not just fixated on, you know, reflection on emotion always means that, uh, you know, uh, I have to feel about it in a certain way. No, there's many ways that you can discuss emotions. Now, emotions is one example, but I'm also looking at perspective shifts after resistance or uh, the appearance of particular norms. So there's there's many ways that, you know, you can map reflection without saying, um, if you follow these steps, this it was this is the outcome and then be done with it. So that's why I use this metaphor of the, the sampling card. Yeah, so Thijs, as a philosopher of culture, you must like it that Sven is using the concept of reflexive culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, de definitely. I, I think that, that this is a very important uh, way of looking at it, not only because of, of the word culture, but also because it indeed emphasizes the, um, let's say, social dimension of, uh, of reflection. Um, I, I guess very often also perhaps in, in, in the kind of popular imagination, when we think of, of reflection or more broadly, when we think of thinking uh, or reflection as thinking about thinking, uh, then we imagine, let's say, uh, Le Penseur of uh, Rodin. Uh, so a, a a figure who is completely uh, um, uh, rolled into himself and and who is uh, closed off from the outside world, he is reflecting, right? If if we are thinking about yeah, or like someone looking in the mirror, it's one person looking in the mirror at themselves. Precisely. Yeah. Well, I I think what what Sven uh, just emphasized and what we also emphasize in in our article is precisely that reflection is is never uh, an individual or at least not solely an individual uh, um, uh, endeavor and and that for, for reflection it is very important to to take other viewpoints into account of course in in part this can also be done on one's own if you are thinking about what might another person do or what might another person uh, think this this can also be part of reflection but ideally it is also something that is publicly shared and public publicly uh, um, uh, communicated and i think there uh, perhaps to to uh, come full circle also towards my my own interest in in uh, art criticism 
there, I, I think there's also an interesting link with uh, thinking about art. It, it's, it's not for nothing that where Kant writes about the reflective judgment uh, and emphasizes the importance of reflection. He does that in the context of the aesthetic judgment. So in, in thinking about art, uh, especially because there are these kinds of fixed rules um, and the kind of solid ground of, of truth is, is lacking. And there it, it makes it uh, even more tangible, perhaps, than, than in other uh, spheres that um, uh, that you need to uh, or, or, or that ideally you come to some kind of agreement. Because, well, perhaps today we might say, well, uh, um, uh, aesthetic taste is, is purely particular or purely subjective, but at least Kant believed that. Indeed, it, it might be subjective as a kind of feeling, but at the same time, we are striving towards or looking at uh, or, or, or uh, aiming towards some kind of universality in, uh, in our aesthetic uh, judgments. So that is something uh, indeed that is uh, very much part of a uh, of a culture, I would say, and, and a culture indeed of, of reflection. You might think uh, in terms of, of um, within a professional setting. Uh, but I would also say, indeed, in a society at large, that uh, you can speak of a culture that is more or less uh, reflective. What are some concrete recommendations based on your paper? Well, i I think um, I think I would I would answer in the following way. So the fact that you know researchers try to um, you know figure out the effects of reflection. I'm I'm not against that just just to be clear right I'm just trying to look at the same problem or the same challenge from a different perspective so um and second if researchers come up or if teachers come up with kind of you know a stepwise entry on how reflection could be done um that is also fine with me um I'm I'm not against you know models of reflection as such um, but as I said, I'm trying to look at reflection in a, as, a, as a kind of reflexive culture that exists in a particular institute and how the participants involved, uh, from the teachers who designed the curriculum to the uh, GPs in training or the students who, you know, to need to wrestle with the, with what, what the teachers provide them, um, that is, that is what I'm, I'm trying to figure out and, and how that creates a particular way of meaningful reflection for these people in this particular institute. And now, um, as I said, um, based on our kind of two gaps that we highlighted through the philosophy, uh, on the one hand, the uh, gap between practice and theory, and on the other hand, the individual and the communal sense, then I would emphasize that, uh, at least from our perspective, that activities that um, increase the communal aspect uh, is, in our view, kind of um, um, uh, uh, we, we prefer that type of activity um, because I don't I don't think that writing a portfolio or a reflexive text for yourself is in any way bad. Um, but what we see in our data, though, is that um, you know the presence of peers. In a, in a healthy reflexive setting helps push your individual sense beyond what you might have possibly imagined because you're you're getting feedback from them you're you're getting a resistance from them on your perspective so 
um, this exchange between like bridging the theory practice gap by talking about it with others is something that based on our argumentation, you should you should um, nurture, cherish and stimulate in a particular medical education curriculum. So that is one of the most concrete ones that I think comes out of our argumentation. And secondly, um, when you want to create a, a healthy kind of, in my view, a kind of healthy uh, reflexive culture, and based on our argumentation, you should perhaps be a little bit hesitant when it comes to assessing reflection. Because assessment implies that um, you could figure out as an assessor if someone reflected particularly well, if they followed the rules or not, if they used the protocol well, if they went through the steps successively and, and you know, properly. Whereas we're trying to argue, okay, you know, um, some people might be able to, you know, follow and execute a nice reflexive structure following a particular model. But for others, this this model might not so much work, um, you know, and there might be ways that the model constrains them. And then to argue, ha, you've reflected wrongly because you missed out on step five. Um, I don't know if that is particularly helpful. And you have to, I think, be a bit humble in assessing reflection that way. And um, uh, again, to draw from our data, so, you know, I, I know of a couple of these models that, you know, have a sort of five-step phase. And when you look at people kind of talking to each other in these reflexive sessions, you know, I think some of these case discussions are super um, uh, deep and layered, but they're like missing out on step five or step three, right? And am I then the one to say like, here, sure, here, this is, you've reflected wrongly or not deep enough. No, I think, I think that's quite, quite odd to say and I think you should be humble and and careful to assess reflection that way now this doesn't mean that you that you need to you know help show trainees how reflection can be done and this is the third recommendation that we have that we kind of it's a bit of a joke but it's also meant seriously you can't learn reflection but you need to practice it and with that we mean to say you know um I will. I will not test you on on if you've done a, a good reflection and you know followed all the steps. No. Um. What I would like to do is you know socialize you in practicing how to talk about your your profession with other professionals, albeit teachers, supervisors, or or fellow trainees. And it's the practice part that makes you jump um, the the theory practice gap. You know, it's not learning the rules. <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to learn the rules at some point. To, to, to make to make a jump but like it's it's the jumping that needs to be practiced a little bit and that can be done in a safe reflexive environment such as you know um, a reflexive a group reflection session where where people find safety and comfort to speak their mind but where there is also maybe uh, some space for respectful disagreement mm, thank you so much and Thais, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a different final question because uh, this article is part of the uh, series in Teaching and Learning in Medicine, but it's also a chapter in an edited volume which is more generally about the value of philosophy for medical education. So for, for people who are listening who are interested in philosophy, do you have any <laughs> tips or, or where do you start if you want to get into philosophy more as a medical education professional? Ah, that's a good question. Um, well, 
I'm I'm not whether uh, completely sure whether this would be the best place to start, but but perhaps don't I, start I, with I, Kant. <laughs> no, 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 don't start with Kant. No, no, I, I was actually thinking about one of my own philosophical heroes, uh, who is uh, which is uh, Theodore uh, Adorno, uh, who is also not uh, that easy to read. So again, I, I would not be sure to start with him. But one of the reasons that I mention him is that um, he, uh, together with uh, with colleagues, uh, talk about what they call instrumental rationality. And, and it, it's very much in line with what Sven said earlier, that um, uh, reflection or rationality is, is um, uh, conceived of very often in a, in a kind of very one-dimensional way, as, as, as a kind of goal-oriented uh, trajectory to get stuff done and and for them this was a kind of perversion of uh, of of how rationality was was meant in in the enlightenment eh? which was more of a kind of open-minded uh, uh way to approach uh the world's dogmatism uh and and all those kinds of things so uh, that for me has been a great inspiration also in, in thinking about uh, the things that uh, Sven and I uh, have been uh, dealing with. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether that would be also the best place to start. Perhaps one, one other tip, which is from, from, a, from a rather different uh, direction, is um, a book which is, which is pretty uh, readable by... Um, uh, a, uh, I think, Swedish philosopher, Martin Haglund, uh, and the book is called This Life. Uh, and it is about um, mortality uh, and about uh, human fragility. Uh, and I think it, in a way, perhaps especially also for, for uh, medical professionals, in, in a way it also... Uh, uh, makes you humble towards uh, uh, in the, indeed what what human existence and what human life is um, is about. And you're very humble, of course, not to mention your own books, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, I will li link them in the description so people can look at your work as well. Well, thank, thank you, you both so much. Well, thank you for having us. Likewise. <laughs>